let's fuck. It's time to get down with the candy-colored clown that is America's most velvety podcast, The Pod People. I'm Detective Pervert Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets, and I'm doing it for Van Gogh. Hi, I'm definitely not R. Kelly, but I am trapped in the closet. <laughs> Cleveland Mosier. One thing I can't fucking stand is warm fucking beer. It makes me puke. I'm Sarah Morris. <laughs> Sarah, we're so glad to have you back after a lovely episode last week on Possession. Uh, We're now moving on to Lynch again, thanks to Cleveland. It was his pick. And uh, we're tonight going to be talking about uh, David Lynch's 1986 film Blue Velvet, starring Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rossellini, Laura Dern, and Dennis Hopper. And so many more. And lots of, uh, yeah, good little bit parts from frequent David Lynch collaborators, little character actors. We get some uh, Jack Nance and yes, we do. Brad Dourif, uh, both a little underutilized in my opinion, but can't have it all. Well, Cleveland, I know you picked this one even though you haven't seen it. So, uh, as usual, let's start with Baby. All right. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Very different connotation after uh, watching this movie. Uh, (laughs) That's for sure. Yo, uh, what a film. (laughs) You know, of course, this has been on my radar for years. Living in North Carolina for a few years, I think in particular, and uh, working for a, like, nonprofit theater, you know, for a while in a small town, like, you hear a lot of talk about Blue Velvet, because I think uh, it's local to the area if i understand correctly uh so there's that that fun personal you know aspect of it that you know all the all the sets all the locations you can just feel it in the the heat in the air uh like it's it's north carolina and it's fun because that's where we're at so it's, it's got a nice personal touch i'm quickly becoming a, an avid lynch fan like the rest of you uh, you got I'm, catching up to do i but do you're doing a good job. and i'm having a hell of a great time it's fun because we get to we get to see the whole process over the course of the podcast as we, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sprinkle them in occasionally, but I'm keen to get through the rest of David Lynch's uh, filmography and... What a great place to to get get going. Well, yeah, it, it's been nice because it's it's given me an excuse to rewatch a lot of his stuff that I hadn't seen in a while. I haven't seen Blue Velvet in probably six years. I think I was I was like a sophomore in college the last time I watched it. I'm pretty sure, and it, it's it's interesting to see it on the heels of just watching through Twin Peaks like we did recently and doing Fire Walk with me because I think. For me, in a lot of ways, Blue Velvet is kind of like proto-Twin Peaks. Yes. About five years before Twin Peaks started, and there's a lot of similar ideas and themes um, that you get the sense that Lynch was kind of like playing around with in Blue Velvet that he later uh, kind of expanded upon in Twin Peaks. Um not to mention that the protagonist is the same. We'd see little baby Kyle McLaughlin in this one. Our boy. That's right. Well, we get to watch Coop solve his first mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, the places he'd go. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Blue Velvet is actually my entry point into David Lynch. It was the first oh, wow. David Lynch movie I've ev- I ever saw. It was mine. And uh, I watched it's it not a bad entry point. twice in a row. I think it's a great entry point, actually, because it's quite accessible for the most part. I had forgotten how 
kind of straightforward it is for Lynch's stuff. Yeah. Even compared to, like, some of the weird depths that Twin Peaks goes, like... Blue Velvet has its moments, but I, I think it's it actually is a, a really great entry point for David Lynch because it gives you some of those little hints of the weirdness and the surrealism, but also it's easy to follow. It's straightforward. It's, it's tight and contained, you know? <laughs> and the surrealism is all, for the most part, directly serves realism. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It, you, you always understand what is occurring and why. Uh, and he's just sort of using them just as an emotional mechanism. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas, like, his other works, often it comes from somewhere deeper and uh, l- more abstract. Whereas here, like, if someone is panicking or we're, we're seeing like, the rise of, like, this this evil character, we were cutting back to that, like, that sputtering, flickering candle, that uh, that flame. Mm-hmm. It's like a torch. A little like bit a, of dream energy. Yeah. And, and imagery, you know, rather. and it's that idea of, like, that, that, that light almost being blown out. You know, um, and the the chaos of that, which is sort of this this whole film is sort of built around that is we're just seeing this one moment where the wind is picking up in all of these little lives in this little town. The film is really Kyle MacLachlan's character sort of dipping below the surface of sort of like idyllic small town and like getting a taste of the darkness underneath. Um, Once again, very Twin Peaks, but I think in Twin Peaks... Lynch goes even deeper into those dark depths. I mean, with a series, you have a, a lot more room to do mm-hmm. that slowly and, and explore more. And uh, also, by then, too, like, he'd had that much more practice as a spelunker. I absolutely love how, you know, Lynch presents that thesis of the kind of idyllic American dream suburbia yeah, uh, very white picket fence. White picket <laughs> fence is literally the first yeah. thing we see in this well, movie. Well, that that whole sequence, I think, is such a perfect illustration of what the whole film is going at. You know, yeah. you get the white picket fence, you get the friendly firefighters idyllically waving, yep. and then uh, you see Cal McLaughlin's dad collapse. And you, while watering his lawn. Yeah, yeah, while watering his lawn. And you get a shot going into the lawn and you see all of these black roaches. Down into the dirt and where it's just swarming with beetles and bugs crawling over and each other. It's, it's such a super ominous drone beneath all yeah, of it, it's too. It's such though. a perfect <laughs> representation of what this film is going yep, for. It's it exactly, you know? yeah. It it's, made me wonder if this had come later in Lynch's career, we had more playroom with like um, Tomming, if he was would have elongated that shot quite a bit like just focus more on the the darkness yeah it's crawling the restraint in this movie is so kind of out of character for what i expect from david lynch yeah um especially you know as he gets into later stuff like post twin peaks where he's just like really indulgent and slow and just lets you sort of marinate in in it um mostly to his work's benefit i think i don't have a problem with that in his later stuff but i continue to be shocked watching this movie again being like wow that's very restrained for david lynch it's true and you guys were talking about how accessible it is like i remember this was my first lynch and my mom watched it at our neighbor's house they owned a video store and this is not a like David Lynch is not someone my mom would watch. Yeah, maybe the straight story, but um, <laughs> she'd probably like that. But I remember her describing it to me and saying it was weird, 
but she really liked it because she likes detective mysteries and stuff. Um, but I remember thinking like, oh, I want to see that because it sounds weird, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was, but it wasn't off the wall. Like it was, it was narratively cohesive. And I think at the, at the few points in the movie where it does start to verge into that sort of like deeply uncomfortable territory, mostly with Dennis Hopper's character, it pulls back before it becomes overwhelming. Like it, it gives you enough right of on it. That edge. Yeah, okay. it's, yeah, it's overwhelming. And I, I would I would argue that a lot of the surrealism stuff mm-hmm. is tertiary and in the background. Like yeah. for example. When Cal McLaughlin's character is getting beaten up, the woman is dancing on top of the car. Yes. And it's a background it's a element. It's clown. Um, it's so memorable, but it's not necessarily the main focus of the scene. Yeah. yeah. That's a very Twin Peaksy David Lynch moment when she just, the, the woman just climbs up onto the car and starts dancing yeah. while they're beating the shit out of Cal <laughs> McLaughlin. For some narrative context, the events of the film get kicked off. When Kyle, uh, when uh, Jeffrey, is his character's name, is walking home from visiting his dad in the hospital, uh, walking through a field behind the neighborhood, and he finds a human ear. And uh, instead of just calling the cops and then being done with it, he allows himself to sort of get sucked into uh, trying to solve the mystery himself, because... I mean, he's back in the town where he grew up. It's boring. There's nothing going on. He craves that excitement. He wants to, to you know, get down into the, the dark underbelly of uh, of this town. What is it called? Uh, Lumberton? Lumberton. Yep, it's a real town in North Carolina. Lumberton, North Carolina. I love the theme song for Lumberton that plays on the radio every half hour, I think it is. God. <laughs> The sound, sound of the, the tree fall- falling. The sound of the falling tree. One thirty. So nothing else to fill their time. Yeah. yeah. On the radio, that's so good. So one thing that um, I noticed was maybe more so than in past viewings, the thing that kind of kicks it off is his dad's heart attack, and then him seeing his dad in the hospital, like unable to speak and yeah. really distraught. His dad is like sobbing. And then that's sort of maybe the impetus for him to embrace this darkness. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like he almost, I think, sees that future for himself and says, "I don't just want to have a heart attack watering my lawn. Like I want to, I want to have like seen and done something." So he like he he allows himself to get pulled down this. Uh, this rabbit hole of what he thinks is is an exciting mystery, but then quickly realizes that he's bitten off way more than he can chew. <laughs> yes. It's so interesting how the, the dichotomy between, like, Sandy and her family is almost like a fairy tale, and then there's, like, this dark underbelly. He um, wants both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's really... He's torn. He's, yeah, he's caught feels, between two worlds. Like and yeah. it's great because he's not only caught between two worlds uh, in the, the aspect of like the sacred and the profane. Um, he's also caught between two worlds of adulthood or between adulthood and being like a teenager. He's only just gone off to school and come back home. He's what, like 18, 19, right? So like he's both 
juggling like the relationship of a high school senior and also like a very adult woman that's not something you see very often in films you know and he's he's just right on the cusp of of both of these things and that addresses a lot of crazy themes um, yeah, and it's an opportunity for some wild storytelling because so often like our, our noir detective is, you know, like, hard boiled, hard boiled. They they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're coming back home from the war or something. You know, they're they're not coming back home from school and they after only just left. You know, they're not they're not so young. And I, I love that. Like and it's it creates this sort of bridge between like Nancy Drew and um, Dick Tracy. It's really cool for that. Yeah, and I I think Isabella Rossellini and uh, uh, Laura Dern play such perfect foils to each other within the story. Um, You really feel like they are two worlds that are disparate, but at the same time, you see similarities Mm -hmm. in ways. Yeah, I I find all that super fascinating. Laura Dern especially plays such kind of a figure of innocence in this film. Yes. What grounds uh, Jeffrey to the real world is his relationship with uh, with Sandy. What keeps him coming back from the, the darkness, the dark waters that he keeps uh, wading deeper and deeper into, uh, but also finds himself fascinated by um you know he's he's enamored with Isabella Rossellini and even goes so far as to debase himself and her you know it's sort of like when when she keeps asking him to to hit her and he doesn't and he won't do it but then finally he does and yeah. he you also get a little bit of of him getting some kind of like carnal joy out of that and uh, i think that scares him too which is why he then goes running back to laura dern almost immediately Mm -hmm. to something to something a little more uh wholesome and grounded but still he can't stop thinking about it sandy's a neat girl Uh, yeah she's great she's so good in this i always forget like i think that uh just like for sam neill so many people think of laura dern and like jurassic park Park. yeah Uh, what an interesting carryover theme from last (laughs) week week. yeah yeah but uh she's been she's fantastic in this she's i saw something in an interview with her about um like how she said that David Lynch thinks of her as every woman. And I was just even thinking about her compared with the other Lynch characters she plays. And this one is just so pure. Like she's really uniquely innocent in this one. They do such a great job introducing her because it's a very noirish introduction where she steps out of the darkness into the light and it's almost like a spotlight shining down upon her well and it also uh reflects her own story later on that she tells in the car of the robins coming up out of the darkness and and filling filling it with light and she herself does that at the beginning and love of course which is what she is and represent love Eels. She says that exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a, all the robins are gone and it's dark, but then the thousands of robins are released and all of a sudden the light comes back. Uh, that comes back in some interesting ways at the end. We don't have to get into that yet, but uh, the robins are <laughs> are significant. Yeah, just like in Twin Peaks, the owls are not what they say. Same with the robins here. <laughs> No, I think in this, the robins are exactly what they seem. Well, I mean, they're not literal robins, so they're not. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know there's a lot of other stuff we can talk about, but I want to talk about Dennis Hopper. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Let's just dive in head first. What is horror in this movie? So I was kind of yeah. thinking about that. Well, it's Dennis, Dennis Hopper. It's Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Yeah. Same topic. The he's, darkness. Yeah, yeah. He's the, the character that does take this uh, this film and put it uh, into uh, horror. To continue to make the Twin Peaks comparison, I, in a lot of ways, see Dennis Hopper's character as kind of like a uh, like proto-Bob He's got yes, a very lot of much the so. same kind of yeah. energy. Like Bob in Twin Frank. Peaks is is a much more you know uh, primal uh, antagonistic force. Like he's literally a, a spirit. He's otherworldly, mm-hmm. um, but he it's got a lot of the same energy as as Frank in this movie. The the like manic perversion, the sort of like feral rages that he flies into. He's very animalistic, but he has the most quotable lines in this movie. He, oh, yeah. Hopper is oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. And the thing is, like, I, I definitely see that comparison, and I think the Bob character in Twin Peaks is fantastic. I still think Dennis Hopper in this movie is better, though, just because he's he has such a tour de force of energy in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, Bob is Bob is a representation. Yeah. Bob doesn't speak really. Like, yeah, Bob is Bob is is the evil that is lurking in Twin Peaks. But uh, Dennis Hopper is much more. Frank is much more of a character. character yes, yeah. for sure, absolutely. I, it definitely helps that he gets a bunch of lines. Mm, yeah. I remember the first time seeing this, how horrifying he was because he was so unpredictable. Yes. And he was so intense and I didn't know what he was going to do next. And it would take my mind to like the most horrific, especially after the introductory scene where he beats and rapes Isabella Rossellini. Just after that being the establishing scene for his character, it just really took my mind to dark places that the movie doesn't go. That's a good point. There's definitely some really horrible things that he does, but at the same time, it's like the the darkness and violence that he's capable of is, I think, much more implicit than like what we actually see in the film, Um, which is worse. Yeah, 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 horrifying to be like projected in to those those spaces um and it it is uh frankly wretched i see what you did there uh (laughs) if to be frank uh (laughs) if you will uh it is horrifying and and of course that that's uh the point because we see our protagonist we see uh i I keep wanting to say coop but jeffrey uh we see jeffrey um you know brought near those same places as well and him having to deal with you know by witnessing these acts almost playing a part in them and you know not not understanding that you know like um like observing electrons yeah well i think with frank dennis hopper in particular brings such an energy to the character that i don't think many actors could where it's straddling the line so perfectly between being incredibly intimidating and scary and kind of comical in its absurdity yeah Yes. Uh, I, I think that's such a tough line to straddle, and Dennis Hopper kills it in that respect. One of the minor character points that I find so fascinating and disturbing is his constant use of the gas mask. Yes, he's like huffing nitrous oxide or something. We don't yeah. really know yes. what he's huffing. Well, I, he's got a canister like attached to his yeah. belt. I, I, yeah. read, I read an interview with Lynch 
that apparently originally it was going to be helium gas. Oh and my god! He was so gonna, gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! That would have yeah. been insane. Oh, I would have loved to see that, but I think Dennis Hopper does so well that it doesn't need that addition because yeah, it, it always almost, has it that absurd comedy already. Yeah. Yeah. I think with a lesser actor. They might have needed that for the comedy side of things, but yeah. Dennis Hopper knows how to straddle that line, like I said. That's just making me think, though, about the henchman all taking him seriously while he's talking in, like, a half-pitched helium point. Well, like, that's, that's the thing, like, to Ben's point exactly, is, like, so many of his lines are laugh-out-loud funny, yeah. but at the same time, the violence that is boiling underneath the surface that is it's impossible to forget like it's funny but you don't know when he's going to snap at any moment because he's so incredibly volatile like he's set off by things that don't make any sense like his triggers don't have any kind of real logic to them and that's what makes it scary because how can you tiptoe around a minefield if you don't at least have an idea of where the mines are. And it is believably irrational, too. It's not random. There's no logic at first, or it's not a logic you can impart on it without knowing going in. But with hindsight, you can start to understand why those certain things triggered him. Well, to a degree, it is it is sort of a gamble because like when they portray like the rape sequence, like there are um, a number of triggers like brought up then that are brought up again later on. Don't look at me, you know, like uh, in the car with uh, Jeffrey, you know, he says that same thing to him yeah. and, and that dynamic of like how he projects like his, his really fucked up sexuality, like onto the rest of the world, like as he's Baby walking around, like is horrifying <laughs> and I'll fuck anything that moves. <laughs> <laughs> the let's fuck line just <laughs> makes me think of let's rock. It's <laughs> Yes. Let's fuck. (laughs) And, you know, that balance between not knowing what's coming next from Dennis Hopper paired with the absurd comedy even comes through to the physicality of his performance. Yes. It's weird to say it, but like, for example, even with the rape scene, it's horrifying and terrible, but he's doing it so quickly and primally that it's almost a sort of like dark comedy in that like it's not it doesn't feel human but that's almost what makes it scarier i literally like every time i see that scene after it's over i like have to think of what i just saw i really have to yeah because it's yes you're right it is so comical almost and it's like it just t- tonally does not match what's going on in the scene. Yeah, but it works so perfectly for Frank as yeah. a character. Well, that's the thing is like it's it's undeniably like a rape scene, but there's no like penetrative sex. Like he doesn't even take his pants off. Like he dry humps her. Like, as he's beating her. And the whole, like, infantilization thing where, you know, he becomes baby uh, and then just kind of, like, dry humps her to completion is, like, there's an an impotence to it. Daddy's coming home. Yeah, exactly. He's he's simultaneously daddy and baby, which is weird. Well, that's Oedipal complexes for you, right? right. Yeah, yes. 
that Wait, whole idea, scene. trying to become the father, you know, all that shit. Right at the beginning of the scene, I think she calls him baby, and he says something like, "He says no, daddy." <laughs> daddy. Well, and yeah, like even on the phone before then, like when she's talking to him, like she she calls him like both of those things. Yeah. Um, so you know that even then he's doing the same thing, like in hindsight. Like yeah, there are so many little like hindsight rewards. I can only imagine too, like watching it like several times over, like and seeing how those things play up. Like, yeah, be, Lynch has I mean, such a great attention to detail. Even with small little bits and jokes, like the introduction of Heineken, when, yes. uh, you know, Cal McLaughlin and Laura Dern are having a Heineken, and later Cal McLaughlin mentions it in the bathroom. <laughs> because, <laughs> oh, yeah, when he's peeing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and because when he, he flushes the toilet, he misses Laura Dern's signal that Dorothy is coming up the <laughs> stairs because of the Heineken. And then once uh, Frank takes him on the joyride later, get the great line where he says, what kind of beer do you like? Heineken. No! <laughs> Pabst Blue Ribbon! <laughs> yeah, one of the most quotable lines. In the yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Fuck that shit! Pabst Blue Ribbon! <laughs> Heineken does not do him right in this movie. No, no, it doesn't. That's how you do product placement, though. Wow. How about it? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Like, in that first scene, too, Laura Dern's like, yeah, I've never he- had Heineken. My dad drinks Bud. And then Kyle is just like, ah, the king of beers. <laughs> Brought to you by Heineken. <laughs> the, 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 like, weird, the weird significance that, like, different brands of beer have in this movie but it is, is really strange. It is so small-town America. Like, it, it is, is yeah. so often on the brain. Um, and uh, it's what David Lynch does so well, is he keys into those little, those little boomerangs, those little thoughts that we can all relate to. Like, uh, or at least like as Americans, like growing up, like, uh, you, you hear those sorts of conversations and like just about anyone will have had those conversations at some point in time. And it, it allows us to relate with Jeffrey on a level so much more beyond like Jeffrey looks like me or Jeffrey went through, you know, something similar to me. It's, it's, it's those little interpersonal moments that, no one does like Lynch does that I think bring me just right into the scene uh, and it, because yeah, they're just they're so human. They're so personal. And it's just little touches. That's another I think what you were talking about is another element of Jeffrey's maybe growth away from his hometown. Right. He's like boomeranged back, but he's been to school and he's been exposed to Heineken, right? Yeah. He's not the same small town boy <laughs> that's that his, he was. That's the culture he's brought with him. Right. Yeah. He's, he's drinking imported yeah. beer that's, now. That's what he's <laughs> he's learned in the faraway land so he can come back and be a prophet. Like, not but, yeah, it's, not it's but Heineken. PBR. Those are brewed mm-hmm. here in the USA. Right. Yeah. Heineken's that foreign shit. Yeah, I well, that's why I find it so interesting that Frank is so passionate about Pass Blue Ribbon because PBR is a very American beer. That's a working man's beer. And, you know, the idea of Frank being so obsessed with an American beer kind of is representative of how his character is kind of a force of American brutishness and just uh, savagery. Hiding underneath the American ideal of the white picket fence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Lots of uh, different American uh, uh, ideals being represented here. Well, that's another interesting point, I think, because it 
it was really occurring to me what is Frank coercing out of Dorothy, right? He's coercing on-demand performance and like the access to her body, which are kind of extensions of that sort of uh, like the twisted access to goods, products, and services, right? That are whoa. Sorry. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. That's great. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that are um, some of that seedy underbelly that exists like behind the white picket fence. Yeah. He's, he's product placement to her. Like she's mm-hmm. been commodified. She's been objectified. It's that, that same idea. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And, You're you know, so- even on a broader sense, you know, like Americans living, quote unquote, the American dream without thinking of the costs that people, you know, in the third world or, you know, in lower classes may have to pay for them to enjoy that luxury. Well, and how much of the American dream is also like criminal, you know? Yeah. Yes. There's such a there's such a rich tradition of organized crime in America and that being as like that being representative of how you you climb to the top, you know? You have to go through uh, you know, underhanded, dirty, illegal means in order to cement your place in America. That is Frank, you know? He's he's a drug dealer, a murderer. He's he is uh He's he involved with the police in some exactly. way. That's he's involved in conspiracy really beyond yeah. that. Dirty yeah. cop. And well, yeah, I mean, there's always dirty cops and organized crime, mm-hmm. always. And the fact that he wears disguises, too, or at least he wears at least one disguise. <laughs> this is good. Um, the well-dressed man. The well-dressed man. man. Um, which uh, looks like a disguise even from a distance. Yeah, which, which also, <laughs> yes. like, puts him more, like, into that idea of being, like, a caricature or a, um, uh, like, an archetype, right? It's like, like, anyone can deal with Frank. That idea of, like, you know, to, to sell your soul, quote, you know, like, to, to get to the top in this culture, you have to, uh, you know, make deals with Franks. As wild and crazy as he is, he can fall into anywhere. And the disguise being cartoonish and cheap makes it scarier because it's, you know, anyone can get their hands on it. And it still works. Uh, that's what I like, too, is 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 goofy as it is, like, at a distance, uh, when he's taking the, the photos, you don't think about it. And you can you can get away with, with being anyone at, at, at low cost. We don't know what Frank's income is. We don't know anything about him. We never see his home. We just see how he interacts with the world. And anyone could buy, just about anyone could buy a gun in a cheap disguise. And that's all Frank needs, apart from his... Uh, his, his, his laughing gas or, you know, whatever it is. Speaking of, I have a question for you guys. Um, which came first, uh, Little Shop of Horrors or this? Uh, because Steve Martin's character in Little Shop of Horrors is very, very, very similar. Is, oh, it, a, is it a play? The 80s, the 80s one, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, yeah. Yeah, Steve Martin has the whole bit where he's a dentist and he's like huffing his laughing gas and he has, a, he has a, like a, a fucked up shrine to his mother in his closet. Because that's got to be like. Same year. Same same year, yeah. Wow. Whoa, whoa, well, wait. In fairness okay. to, like, I think in the Roger Corman one in 1960, uh, there is a sadistic a dentist, dentist character, played yeah. by Jack Nicholson, actually. I, wasn't that Jack Nicholson's first role? I think so, yeah. Is, is as the dentist yeah. in that one? <laughs> 
Yeah, I didn't I didn't draw that parallel to the to the eighties little shop of horror, but yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, Steve Martin, Martin is yeah. he does kind of have Frank vibes. Well, I mean, he does the whole like biker just, thing yeah. and all of it. Yeah, like a part like the dentist is the like his his occupation is the only real like differing factor. Because yeah, he's got the shrine to his mother and all of it. Like it's just yeah, and he he huffs laughing gas. Well, parallel generation i suppose because they yeah. both came out the same year hard to say if if either one influenced the other yeah, I, i'm gonna have to look into that more because yeah that, that, it's just it was a weird parallel i was thinking of that the whole time i was like well it's just like steve martin except legitimately horrifying yeah scarier <laughs> yeah. frank is definitely scarier yeah. than, the, than that dentist yeah and i'm glad that would have really changed the tone of uh, little shop uh <laughs> 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 really yeah, you're ready, <laughs> you're ready really to change. fuck <laughs> I'll fuck anything that moves. Feed me your inner darkness, Seymour. Yeah. That's that's the funny Put, thing, yeah. you know. Like it, Frank is constantly put your disease in me, Seymour. Oh, <laughs> that's the one. In this movie, Frank is is constantly talking about fucking, but. He doesn't actually fuck anybody in this movie. Like, like there's what? there's a scene where he where he yeah rapes Isabella Rossini, but like I said, her, but yeah, yeah, di- exactly, him. digitally John rapes him. her with his hands. But um, he's he's constantly talking about fucking, but we're never seeing him fuck anybody. He's just like, I'll fuck you, I'll fuck you, I'll fuck anything that moves. You fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and then he wants to toast to fucking. Yeah, then it's like if you if you must or something. Yeah, it says toast to your health. Is like let's I'd rather let's let's toast to anything else. Let's toast to fucking (laughs) to Frank's fuck. Yeah, it's it's that idea of like people who just keep going into darker and darker rooms who have lost themselves in their own perversion so much that it it's it's it has nothing to do with like the physicality of it anymore. It's it's all like just it's all just recrossing those wires that shouldn't be crossed at that point for him. Yeah, um, it kind of begs the question if Frank is capable of fucking. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if not. Mm-hmm. Which is he definitely has many substitutes, and it's it, that would explain his his fixation on it is like kind of willing himself or or compensating for not being or for being impotent, yeah. um, which but, is likely the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's just he's constantly seeking orgasm the whole time. He's just trying to seek like some kind of release, and he and he often achieves it. If there's anything going on apart from mental is almost irrelevant at that point. Like, yeah. <laughs> all symbolic orgasm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's his, it's his entire motivation. That's what makes him a scary villain is that he doesn't have, like, uh, a, a motivation. Like, there's there's the idea of, like, you know, some conspiracy or whatever. Like, he has dirty cops on his payroll, but, like, we he doesn't have, like, a master plan, you know? It's not like, the, the movie's not like Kyle MacLachlan, like, trying to stop Frank uh, before he achieves his plans. It's like, Frank doesn't have any plans. That's why I no. always think it's so funny when Ben says, I'll see you on Tuesday, Frank. And, like, in my head, I always think, like, is, is Frank even going to be... Be around Tuesday, like Frank makes plans. Yeah, like who, <laughs> yeah. who fucking knows? Yeah. You know, like How reliable his... is Frank? Does he show up for these business meetings? He's a, a, a an agent of pure chaos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's the Joker, baby. He is, <laughs> he is the Joker. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he kind of is. <laughs> yeah. 
always wonder too if if Dorothy has this desire to be hurt during sex before Frank enters her life or if this is something that Yeah, it feels it feels deeply rooted, you know? Like I don't get the impression that the thing with Frank and her has been going on for a very long time. I don't like it seems it feels recent, you know? It does. Mm-hmm. And I wonder though like part of me wants to think is she is this her way of enduring this torture is that she's learned to enjoy pain yeah. it just makes me yeah. think a lot about how you would learn to endure that like yeah she's mm-hmm. like her wires are crossed you know she sees Kyle McLaughlin as her savior but at the same time still you know demands violence from him because like she's something somewhere has crossed those wires in her head where she can't quite extricate them right she um, has to keep being raped by this man to keep her child alive i mean how right. do you i see, see it as penance asking like to receive violence is is her oh. self-flagellation like it's it's like a like a priest like trying to escape mm-hmm. their sin because like she's been forced into this this role it's that idea of like now that you're there you have to make do with what you can and like if if you play along with it for long enough like you said those wires can get crossed and yeah, and she's also learned her role in that mm-hmm. well, she keeps she keeps saying about jeffrey for survival yeah. like yeah absolutely she keeps saying about jeffrey like you've put your disease in me yes. and probably like what we're seeing is that from frank as well like he has put his disease in her and yes. that's what and she oh and God, she's not yeah. able to dissociate that. So then, yeah. when she has, you know, sex with Kyle McLaughlin, she's like, "Now you've put your disease in me," and she seems to almost be comforted by that. She says, with, and it's helping me. And it's yeah. helping me, yeah. right? So it's like she's trying to use his quote unquote disease to drive out Frank's. Mm, mm, yeah. There's something yeah. there. That's well, really interesting. I, I like that idea, and I also think it's interesting that. Like at the end of the movie when she keeps repeating that phrase, right? After her husband has been murdered, but we don't know that yet. She yeah. keeps saying that about Jeffrey. Like, he put his disease in me. He put his disease in me. And she's, earlier in the film, she's asked him, you think I'm crazy, right? And I, like, also always think about that phrase, like at the end of the film, and she keeps saying that and just thinking how crazy her circumstances are. Like she's just reacting to these insane circumstances and must feel like she's going mad. And she kind of has broken at that point. What a harrowing role to play. I can't imagine like what the process of Isabella Rossellini playing that role was like, because like it's pretty much the entire film is just like her being forced to debase herself in one way or another and to act that so well like there there i wonder how much method there is in that you she know she does do a fantastic like she's job. she's so good and it's so it's so uncomfortable to watch and like she's so sad like i i don't i don't enjoy watching her because it makes me feel too bad you know like sorry, it's sorry. it's like it's one of those performances you're like it's amazing but i don't i mean like that's it, that's but, that's from yeah. a point of that's from a point of pure praise like Mm -hmm. it's that's not i i don't say that as a complaint like she is 
for me, such an uncomfortable character to watch because her circumstances are so horrible and she's so tortured and mad. And I I feel like that must have done... I I don't know how you can play a role like that without retaining some kind of, like, psychic damage from it, you know? That's really interesting. She's she's an incredible actress. Like, she's... Everybody's great in this movie, but, like, there's something really special about... Isabella Rossellini's performance in this. That is exactly how I felt after watching Raw two weeks ago. Oh, that yeah, same okay. idea. That same idea. Like after watching Raw, yeah. just like, oh my god, masterful performance. I can't watch that so movie again for a long yeah. time. <laughs> like it's just, it was it's so heavy. And the the heaviness and darkness and like madness that she carries with her popping up at the end at Sandy's house, like, like those two worlds converging. Yeah. Is just she she just does such a fantastic job in that as does Laura Dern just like you can just see her heartbreak you're killing independent George <laughs> sorry I just <laughs> thought about the worlds colliding <laughs> from Seinfeld <laughs> well, if relationship George walks through that door he will kill independent George <laughs> Uh, shout out my boy Costanza. Um, but I think that po- uh, point in the movie is so pivotal for Kyle MacLachlan because, you know, it's truly a turning point in that, you know, you have two sides of this really colliding. And I think right after it, you know, we see him go to her apartment. He's getting ready to leave, but he sees. Frank start to walk up and he decides, no, you know, something has to be done here. Right. He's been on such a wild ride, literally. Like, you know, he he goes back to, to Dorothy's apartment, you know, to have sex with her again. And then as he's leaving, gets accosted by Frank. And that's when they take him on that, that terrifying... Uh, as they call it, joyride, which ends with them, like, beating him uh, in a parking lot, you know? And after that, he's, like, he realizes that he's bitten off as much as he can chew, and that's why he goes back and just drops it and devotes himself to Laura Dern, goes to the party, they say they love each other, but then Dorothy showing up, like beat naked and beaten at Sandy's house later is like, no, you can't just dip your toes into this and then walk away and get away clean. Yeah, it's like he wants to like it's from it you like you yeah. have you have taken agency in this, like you have inserted yourself into something that is literally literally yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is this um, uh, but like, you can't just say, okay, I, I'm going to step away from this. Yeah. You can't just be a passive observer right. through the, the cracks in the door. At a, right. At a certain point, there's no going back. And I think that that's what he, he realizes when, uh, when Dorothy shows up and then he goes to her apartment and finds her, her husband murdered. And he has that moment where like, he's about to do something. And then he's like, you know what? No. I'll just let the police find you. You know, he's not trying to play detective anymore. And once again, he's trying to just walk away from it, but then sees Frank in the disguise coming up the stairs and realizes, like, okay, I I actually can't just walk away from this. 
Like, I tried that once, and it blew up in my face. So, like, I've gotten myself into this. I need to see it through to some kind of finish. coming-of-age moment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I have to say, that scene where he's hiding in the closet and Frank comes in mm. is maybe my favorite scene in the movie. I think it's so incredibly shot. Yeah. You know, uh, the way the apartment is set up where you have the long hallway... And Frank is going down the hallway for the radio, essentially, that he's yeah. hearing. The The composition of it is just so perfect because there's a tension in it in that, you know, you see Frank move away from the camera and distance himself from us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a bit of a relief, but you realize but you know time is he, limited. When he doesn't find what he's looking for down there, he's going to be coming back Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just so perfectly done. I think it's a, a nice flip on the earlier moment in the movie where Kyle MacLachlan is just being a passive observer mm -hmm. too because you know obviously as he grabs the yellow man's gun and things are uh, flipped I think uh, it really creates a nice bit of tension and it kind of builds upon that moment really well. He can no longer be just a voyeur. Yeah. You know? He has to fully step into his role as detective pervert. <laughs> <laughs> He's done the pervert part, but now he has to be the detective. <laughs> but yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a great moment of release too. When, when Frank opens the, the closet and, shoots him right in the forehead mm -hmm. gratuitously too blows his brains out yeah but there's something kind of nice about that too after seeing all of frank and his violence well, to frank final gets his gets the best release possible yeah. the brains out the back of his fucking skull it's the best ending for everyone really i'm shoddy okay <laughs> <laughs> so that that scene also has the really just cool shot of the man in yellow who's been shot through the head but he's standing up like, yeah he's still yeah. alive yeah. yeah he's just like oh you think he's still alive yeah because yeah. he kind of he kind of reacts mm -hmm. like his face does when oh. uh i always thought he was dead when standing well no he's been essentially lobotomized yeah. By, yeah by the, by the bullet. bullet you know that's why he's still standing and swaying but like he kind of reacts a little bit when oh, uh right. when jeffrey yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he pops, pops the lamp over yeah. And when, when Jeffrey grabs the gun and the radio from his pocket, he kind of reacts a little bit. And that's why Frank shoots him again mm. in yes. the head which when he comes back into the room. Is a thing that happens in real life, too, which is what makes it so utterly mortifying. That's a thing that can happen. Yeah, he gets shot in just the right way. Yeah, and, he'd yeah. essentially be lobotomized. He has that idea yeah, of him just like him being a corpse but still standing, you know, is, is terrifying. This movie has one of my favorite foreshadowing devices, which is that if a character is introduced in the same shot as a snake plant, they are a villain. And oh, what? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what? Wow. That's awesome. The yellow man is introduced in the first shot that we see the snake plant or the Sansevieria in, uh, in Dorothy's apartment. I love that. Oh, my it's God. It's a really cool thing to look for I in totally films. I totally miss it, that. Yeah. It's really cool. Like, once you see it, you'll see it in movies over yeah. and over. Wow. Yeah, I, that's something that I was. Sometimes you'll spoil things for yourself. 
Be like, that's, that's a villain. Yeah. yeah. That's great. That's great. That's, that, a, that's a foreshadowing device I have literally never picked up on. I know ever. Muka used to do that, like, in his paintings. All of his allegories. Like, he would often use, like, flowers and, and the ornamentation, like, surrounding the figures that were representative and symbolic of, you know, those those things that are involved in the allegory. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's cool. That's cool, knowing that Lynch is doing the same thing. And probably the most heavy-handed example of, of that I can think of is probably, like, shouting Rose and Sharon in uh, Silent Hill. But this is neither here nor there. <laughs> Do y'all mind if I talk for a brief moment about Rocket Ronnie? Uh, because this is this is just one of the few chances I'll have. So I'm I'm not super Keep it accessible. I will. I will. I, I promise. I'm still baby. Uh, when it comes to the majority of David Lynch's work, I've seen Twin Peaks and now Blue Velvet. And I guess we're gonna firewalk with me, of course. Um, and Eraserhead. Uh, but I still haven't seen Mahal and Drive and the Empire, etc. So, but one thing I have done recently is read the script to Lynch's film that would have come at this time, but wasn't funded. Uh, he couldn't he couldn't get any producer to sign off on it, and that's uh, Rocket Ronnie. And I read the script for it, and uh, it has a lot of themes that carry on throughout his work, especially like in the the Return to Twin Peaks. Um, I noticed a lot of it there. But if you're a Lynch fan, I would really recommend it because you see the sort of the nexus of a lot of these ideas. You know, he's like hot off of a racer head and it's a racer head, but bigger is the idea in a, in the script. And it's it's it gets wild. But uh, the whole narrative, there's a lot of dialogue in it, but the whole narrative is surreal. There's it's not like set in any town uh, and uh, it's, there isn't like a core mystery to follow. And it, I think it's largely why Blue Velvet is so accessible is because it was it made you know potentially an attempt at you know doing something he could sell, like doing a script that he could he could actually like put out. Electricity is a massive theme in Rocket Ronnie as well. Uh, and the idea is uh, our protagonist is a detective who is trying to find the source of the darkness at the center of the city. And there is a sort of anti-electricity. There is a sort of like radiating black hole that is pulling in all of the light of this city. And our detective is going deeper and deeper into it. And the further he goes, the more surreal things get. But things are already really surreal, like on the outside as well but um the idea like the aspects of alternating current um play in which again come up in like the the return to twin peaks and uh there are several archetypal i think figures uh as well uh some named bill some named frank uh as well which is sort of fun so you see those names play in uh but uh as well as a an agent of the the person at the center of the darkness uh who is the donut man and I love that because like uh, how Twin Peaksy, you know, but it's also sort of like the man in yellow and the well-dressed man. It's the it's the same ideas. And the, the donut man is like a huge guy, you know, who shows up and is all scary. And it also plays into duality. And there's just a lot of like cool, like heavy symbolism in there. And so while I do mourn that this film was never made because it's awesome <laughs> like the script is vivid uh, and it gives you a great sense into like his his mentality uh, when he's like writing stories as well but it also um, I'm also kind of glad it wasn't because we get to see these themes worked in uh, the more of a degree of subtlety uh, and uh, I think there's something about 
him putting those ideas like beneath the surface and you can see them like there's a tension in that there's a repression you know as the electricity in this film is is a subtle mechanism but it is there and it and you can feel him wanting to get this idea out and it's it's in the the lamp the detective knocks over uh work work there are mo- many times we we recut to outlets and things like in uh there's the sounds of the radio like going haywire well you have it, ben singing in ben the singing the light, into the know, light exactly. in dreams yeah like um there's a, a buzzing fluorescent sign in the entrance to Dorothy's apartment. Right. And it's it's that there's this sort of pervasive electricity and it's that that idea of industry as well and it's it's a sort of like this industrial life force, this industrial blood and it, how it, it it sort of represents like the course of life. One of the main characters in Rocket Ronnie is Rocket Ronnie who is this man who has been rebuilt by mad scientists into a young boy like who is a robot. And it's just wild. Uh, But he gets taken in by an evil music producer who finds out that if you plug him up to a wall and like ramp up the volts, he makes these weird noises. And so they, they start like they put him in a band and like it starts hurting him. And so like Ronnie is like in pain and he's saying bad electricity, bad electricity. There, there are so many like you know, ideas and themes that start like, you know, coming around, uh, have, you know, being able to stand on one leg in the darkness, like they're, Cool stuff. Some neat stuff. You know, the man with the right arm in Twin Peaks. Cool little ripples that that carried on through the rest of his work. And knowing that that's what this movie would have been blows my mind. He turned away from that, and you you feel it like the the undercurrent of it in in this movie and the rest of his works as he gets those themes out, but in packaging that he can he can get away with that he could sell to a producer. Well, it's interesting because this movie is very much the opposite in that it's very grounded and subtle. Yes. For the most part. Circling back a little bit, Tease, to the idea that you can't just dip your toes in yeah. to, between two worlds. I think the the Robins mm. in the, the final sequence are hugely indicative of that in that they're mechanical. So, you know, even though you have this idyllic image of utopian american dream you know it's not real you know there is still that undercurrent and you can never really go back that's that's what i kind of wanted to ask you guys about for y'all's opinions because like i'm not sure that the ending is supposed to be interpreted literally like i i'm i almost wonder if it's actually happening at all because it's because it's so perfect like after all of this darkness and horror that these characters experience you know at the at the end we get them now settling into their perfect life you know uh dorothy's been reunited with her son uh sandy and jeffrey are together his dad's back you know being literally only line is i'm feeling better i'm feeling better (laughs) i got better (laughs) you know his dad's okay again like and it's literally we're seeing a literal interpretation of the dream that sandy describes that she has earlier with like the robins bringing back love 
and you know they're sitting at the window uh, or they're looking out the kitchen window and there's a robin there with one of the beetles in its mouth the same beetles that we see swarming over each other at the beginning once we've gone down into the lawn it's like oh the robins have come back the the love and the light has come back and you know eaten the darkness and and the grime and the dirt and the horror but it's like it feels so pristine and perfect to me that I have a hard time believing that it's real. Like you said, Ben, like how can you just dip your toes in and not be permanently scarred in some way? Like how can how can everything just go back to being so perfect? Well, that's, that's why, why I love that the I robins think, are fake. Yeah, the the mechanical robins are the perfect tell for that. Yeah, well. I mean, I think it's also a certain degree of utility in filmmaking easier to just make fake <laughs> yes, birds than course. to try to train Of course, robins, but they are but... clearly fake. Yeah, they're you know? very artificial looking. They do um, not look good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you make a really good point as questioning, you know, the reality of this overall. I mean, dreams are such a big motif in this mm. movie that, you know, that's a very valid question to be asked, whether this is a dream of some sort. Right. Or like well, the, yeah, the subconscious like, mind longing to return to the, the beautiful, perfect white picket fence. It is just like it's the opening shot. It's the last shot too. the flowers at the picket fence. It feels like a dream to me. It feels unreal. It's too perfect. It doesn't jive with, with Frank, you know, with like what we've seen, what we've experienced. It's it seems like a a longing for, you know, something that is irreparably lost to me. So the beetles are disease and the robin has to eat the beetle. Yes, yeah, so you put the disease in the, be- <laughs> <laughs> in the Well, I always kind of read it as so interesting thing I noticed is at the beginning that the white picket fence is rimmed by tulips, and at the end, it's rimmed by roses, right? Which are the symbolic of love, and right. that the turning point. And I, I meant to look for this because I looked for the moment where the tonality turns darker. Like it's after um, Jeffrey is trapped in the closet. There's not as much sunlight in the movie mm. until the end. I always kind of read it as Sandy's forgiveness of Jeffrey and then her like really loving him after he's been endangered and like putting all of what's happened aside was that transformational moment that she talks about happening in her dream where like Mm. the Robins come back and it actually does make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. No, I I think you're onto something there too. Cause like, she does she does sort of like forgive him when we don't really expect her to, you know? Kind really of easily. Like yeah, she, easily. She forgives him on yeah. the phone while he's, you know. Yeah, she's like I forgive you. I love you so much. It's like uh, wow, okay. But yeah, you know that is like uh maybe that's all maybe that's all it takes. I mean, I think with Lynch, it, you know, you can there's always something to be said for whether things are meant to be interpreted literally, you know. Right. But, uh, yeah, maybe that rapid forgiveness is where things just break from reality in the movie. Yeah. And it's all kind of dreamed from there. I think a lesser filmmaker would have placed uh, these two key moments separately, and those are, are in the opposite order. And that is uh, Jeffrey witnesses the, the rape. And then he goes home, 
and he has he's beset by horrible dreams you know and he sees he he's sort of re- recounting that sequence again and then later frank you know is taken out for that joy ride and he says to him I'm in your dreams, or I've, I, I'll... He's well, like, you're sing, like me. Yeah. You're like me, and then... And he sings the Ray Orbison song. Yeah, yeah. but but he, he says to him something about, like, I, I, I you're will... Mine you're mine forever. I will always be in your dreams. Something about being in his dreams. Yeah, in dreams, I walk with you. In dreams, I talk with you. Yes. The fact that he has already been in his dreams makes that so much more real to me than if... He had had that moment, and then he went home and had dreams. How awful would that have been, right? <laughs> yeah, like that would have been, was, how literal would that have been, right? But yeah. but instead, we that's removed because he's already been there, yeah. um, and and the the chronology being reversed uh, makes it so much more tangible. I think uh, I, I love that. And again, there's there's total logic for why, you know, like he he just saw that traumatic experience, you know, that traumatic thing. So he has he's he's of course gonna have like some PTSD nightmares from that. But then, then afterwards, you know, to hear like "I'll always be in your subconscious," you know, like I'm, I'm always there. It, ugh, it was wretched. Right, and he's Oof. already had that moment where where he says like, "Why are there men like Frank?" Right, like that. It's like Frank's yeah. disease of trauma, and yeah. why are there men like is Frank? In, yeah, is in Jeffrey. You're like Frank, you know. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Frank sees himself in Jeffrey, or at least he says he does. Well, we see a little bit of it too because. You know, Jeffrey does finally cave and and hit Dorothy. You know, yeah. when she when she asks him to. You know, because she kind of he tells her no, I won't, and she kind of rejects him and says, "Get out of my bed." But he doesn't want and he to. Reactively yeah, he reactively right, hits her. Yeah, he reactively hits her, and that's when she her. accepts him yeah. and lets him back in. You know, this might be a bit of a reach, but uh, as as Do you it. mentioned, Ben, we have Frank quoting the 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 song. You know, in dreams I walk with you, and he's he's represented as we keep seeing by like that flickering candle with the wind blowing out and the synthesis of those two things together. Firewalk fire with, with me. me. Yeah. Oh, I don't think that's a reach at all. Proto, like I'm saying, Frank is proto-Bob. Yeah. Frank is proto-Bob. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there's, I, I feel like there's some connection there, you know? Yeah, I think it's definitely a play on those same themes. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's fascinating. If I remember correctly, the candle blows out after he hits her. We he see that. Now it's dark quite a bit. Like, Right before, he... yeah, in the in the scene where you know she lights the candle when he first shows up, when we first see Frank, and after he's he's raped her and beaten her, he get he stands up and the first thing he does before he leaves, he blows. But that but I mean, off. after Jeffrey hits her, we see that mm. close up of the candle getting blown out. Yeah, if I, I think you're correctly. right. Yeah, and yeah, I think like that's close up of like flame consuming the screen and then the close-up on her smile with the chipped tooth which is just great oh yeah the candle blows Mm -hmm. out i think you're right yeah well damn y'all ready to rate this thing yeah let's do it yeah Yeah. uh cleveland since it was your pick you do the honors of of starting oh you know what it's gonna be it's an easy five like this is just another masterpiece uh we didn't really talk about like the we, we talked about light uh, but we didn't really talk about the lighting. Uh, well, we did a little bit, but uh, anyway, the cinematography rules. Uh, uh, everything rules. The, the a lot script. of it shot with like a, like a fisheye lens that I had forgotten too, especially the yeah. early stuff. Like there's the warping around the edges. Yeah. Like, you see when they rack very... focus. 
also, super wide angle. Yeah, like there, there's a scene where like Kyle McLaughlin or Jeffrey is in the car and uh, he sees the the people get out and there's a rack focus and the car like stretches, you know, because it isn't that wide angle. Uh, it's just fun. I adored it. Five, five out of five. Easy, of course. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a dope movie. Uh, I do find myself at times kind of longing for the more of the David Lynch weirdness. It doesn't need it, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't be enhanced by it, in my opinion. Um, but great film. It's going to be a strong four and a half out of five for me. Wow. Uh, well, you know, one of the all-time biggest film tragedies is that there was an interview with David Lynch where he was talking about how the original festival cut of this film ran for four or five hours. Whoa. Yeah. And that footage has never been released. Oh. Uh, and I would absolutely love to see it. I'd be I hope it's not lost forever because I'm sure it's great and it adds a ton. Uh, but I just mentioned that because this is one of those movies where it keeps me longing for more throughout the whole thing. And once it's done, I just want to run it back again. I think it's a perfect movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's an easy five for me. It's it's amazing. Sarah, bring us home. Yeah, this one gets a, a five with a love letter for me. So, <laughs> Hopefully not the kind of love letter that Frank's talking about, right? Because if you get five a love letter from bullet. him, That's five right. with the bullet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that will give Blue Velvet an average of 4.9 out of five. <laughs> Sorry to be the one to keep uh. it. Sorry to be the spoiler again. It's I'm not sorry. a golden pod. It's, it should be. It should be. It's pretty damn close. Uh, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> Rate how you feel. Rate how you feel. Hey, I, I'm I not gave mad. raw. I gave raw five, and you did. So you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is what it is. That is true. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, ringing endorsement from everybody on the podcast. If. You're a fan of David Lynch, or if you're looking for a place to start your Lynch journey, this is a good one. Uh, it'll it'll ease you in. It'll help you dip your toes in, but uh, you won't come back unchanged. You can't you can't just dip the toes in, you know. Um, ben, what's next week? So next week uh, we're gonna talk about a movie. Uh, it's so. a family movie from 1992. Uh, it stars Denise Richards and uh, Paul Walker. And, you know, it's about a, a robotic lover who comes back to life. The thing is, this movie, Man. it wasn't originally shot as a family film. You see, they cut it down from a hard R down to a PG family movie the movie i'm talking about is tammy and the t-rex oh my god <laughs> what do you have do you have the hard r cut yes they <laughs> just released the hard r cut uh, a year or two ago vinegar syndrome put it out and uh they added all the gore back in and it should be a journey. I'll Holy say that much. Shit. Apparently, the director is the same guy who did uh, the McDonald's branded classic Mac and Me. The E.T. ripoff Mac and Me, I should say. Wow. Um, so we remarkable. are in for a treat. Here's the thing. 
We've been doing a lot of great movies lately. Yes. A lot of <laughs> confirmed easy five out of fives. So I, I wanted to pull one out that might be a toss-up. <laughs> I would not have guessed Tammy and the T-Rex Dude. in my wildest dreams. Remember the T-Rex in it? I'm, I'm hype. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm easy. I'm an wow, easy sell. So, so last week we did Possession with Sam Neill, who went on to do Jurassic Park. <laughs> this week we did Blue Velvet with Laura Dern, who went on to do Jurassic Park. Next week we're going to be talking about a movie with a T Rex. Uh, yeah, T Rex that went on to do Jurassic Park. <laughs> all right, all right. Next week I just went with Jeff Goldblum to even lie. We've already done the fly, but uh, oh uh, damn. Okay, well shit. Come back for a fucking wild card next week. Yeah, I'm I about even, it. I'm I excited. No idea what to expect from this oh. one. Cleveland, do we have a sponsor this week? Do we? Do we? Ever? Do we? Uh, yeah. Uh, this episode was brought to you by uh, uh, Heimdall's Helium. Are you are you tired of uh, sounding like a an elf when shouting at your subordinates, but you still want to get super high? Get Heimdall's Helium, and you can you can still get fucking blasted, uh, and uh, but but not not uh, ruin the tone of your film. There you go. There you go. That's it. For a voice like Blue Velvet. I don't know why I picked Heimdall. I think that's like like Norse mythology. Isn't, isn't he the the god who guards the Bifrost? Yeah. In Norse oh mythology? yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah. I think, I think play, it, played by Idris Elba in Thor in the Thor, Thor movie. <laughs> yeah, well, for whatever uh, reason. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Heimdall. Yeah. Uh, well, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. If you like the show, then don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and at Letterboxd.com slash PodPeoplePod, where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. You can follow me on Twitter at some spooky snake. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. Uh, hey, I, I'm tweeting for Light Arc Studio. Uh, uh, come, come check us out. Uh, uh, yeah, we're we're working on it. Stairs back. It's it's rocking and rolling. Uh, we just put out Tower Call a little while back. Uh, if you haven't played it yet, what are you waiting for? Yeah, go do the thing. Um, and when it comes to me and my own personal work, uh, much like Azathoth, I am just constantly uh, devouring and vomiting out new new content. Uh, go go check out my art station for some art, uh, or check out uh, the Dread Collection games as well. I've I've done some some art for those, and uh, they rock. The uh, The Hunt is coming out pretty soon. The the new Dread collection game uh, with the shooters in it pew, but, pew. but the real question cleveland is your art available as non-fungible tokens um exclusively perfect mm. you've entered the world of crypto art yep sarah where can people find you well if you'd like to see some pictures of my kids or hikes i take you can find me on instagram at cyclone 78 or you can find me uh, with the same handle on letterboxd where I will give my honest gut reaction to both good, bad, and bad, good mm. horror movies and uh, Giallo and the occasional wild card. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, come back next week for T Rex time. Mm. <laughs>